Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 33, Eigenrobot vs. Becoming Creature. It's like, oh, there's some flavor there. Yeah. No, I... Creature has a very different vibe. We got the same flavor. same mics. Oh, yeah. You got the blue one. Yeah. Oh, yours looks blue to me. Yeah. Well, I don't have the... Uh, wait, does it? Mm-hmm. We've got this light coming in. Anyway, by the way, we've been live for like 20 seconds. How are you doing today? That's cool. <laughs> Igen! I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm here with Becoming Critter, if you look at his twitter at or becoming creature.substack.com where the podcast is posted just mm-hmm. gonna get that shilling out right at the open unless you've got more stuff to show lately not right now i'm like working on a few things in the background and sharing it with people that are close to me but um probably not going to be in the public for another month at least yeah so becoming creature.substack.com for now is good yeah yeah so does this make you an e-boy um, I don't, I don't even know what an e-girl is. I was thinking about this. I think an e-girl is just someone that is completely inauthentic for show. Ah, uh, okay. Um, to like serve an audience. Whereas I think what we're doing is playing a lot with our authenticity, maybe in a, in a cartoony way sometimes, but largely it's just like, oh, it's actually us. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I've been accused of being an e-boy. Mm. And I actually was sort of embracing that internally, but I don't entirely know what it means. I mean, it almost feels like it's sort of just a matter of having a large part of yourself, your social presence being online. Maybe eBoy is when you start identifying with your robot more than you identify with your own body. Well, I definitely do some of that. (laughs) I'm not sure when it happened, but I've I've definitely offloaded a lot of my cognition onto, I mean, both my my extended like Twitter web, but also just just I can robot the account, you know, and that's yeah. not entirely true, but I think the just the patterns of thought that I have more match what I put up on Twitter than whatever they did beforehand. I do like the complete opposite. I think like I intentionally never stay the same or do the same kind of thing. Like, I don't, I don't know if you agree with this because you kind of do a lot of the same kind of thing where you're like quote tweeting and making commentary. Yeah. Um, And that's a lot of what you do. Whereas I try to like change it up in a big way, nonstop, like always not necessarily better, but but just different, not downable. You know, yeah, yeah, staying uh, illegible even to yourself. I need to think about that. Yeah, you don't I, seem particularly yeah. illegible. I mean, like, mm, I agree. You're you're usually pretty open and maybe earnest about what you're thinking at any point in time. Maybe that's not true. Since your poster, for sure. Yeah, wow. yeah. So, so okay. Let's um, let's take a step back. How? What's your origin story? On Twitter? Yeah. All right. So. I'm about to make a lot of enemies, but I I, (laughs) do it, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But so I was really into Sam Harris's podcast. Um, so everybody just stopped listening, (laughs) but no, no, that's fine. I mean, like we all come from cringe. (laughs) So I was really into Sam Harris's 
podcast and I think he's actually like an excellent speaker and he's um, really intelligent. I don't agree with everything he says, um, but I love how he talks about meditation and psychedelics and the way he handles a lot of his ideas. Um, he just handles them with a kind of respect and elegance. Yeah. And so I would like read all this stuff about Sam Harris being a loser. And then I'd listen to him and be like, no, this guy's, this guy's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, he's a really good interviewer. Um, Very so, polished. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I just loved his, his cadence and the way he talked about ideas. And I started getting into people that were on his show, such as Shane Parrish of The Knowledge Project and Tyler Cowan of Conversations with Tyler and George Mason University. And so I started listening to their podcasts and they were all kind of talking about Twitter, like intermittently over like a year, I got Twitter pilled. So I went on Twitter to follow these podcasters and their guests. And as I did that, I ended up finding, I think, you and like David Chapman or something. Yeah. And then, so I followed you guys. And at this point I was tweeting like aphorisms <laughs> and stuff like that. I think I do that a lot. That's fine. But it was just like, oh, Seneca said this once. And Marcus Aurelius. Oh, okay. Anyway. Like not inventing your own yeah. aphorisms, but. Oh, okay. no. So, <laughs> <like> philosophy <laughs> aphorisms. So, yeah. So I was doing that. And um, then I just kind of saw all this shit posting, I guess. And like Colin of Zion and everything. And that's how I kind of got introduced to that corner of Twitter. And then you kind of see all this play. And so, you know, you just join the game and everyone's dancing. And that's. That's Twitter. That's great. Interesting. Via Sam Harris. So what, what do you yeah. think of Sam Harris now? Like months or years after the fact? Sam did this stupid thing where he put like the majority of podcast behind a paywall mm. or something. Yeah. And so I just totally stopped listening. Sorry, Sam. Love you. But yeah, yeah I, that's I'm not listening to it at all at this point. Yeah. What's I, I sort of wonder what happened to him. I mean, I, I really only knew him through New Atheism. And, mm-hmm. and, and only like, as somebody who was associated with new atheism back in what, like 2007, 2008, something like sure. that. Yeah, same. Yeah. And, um, so something about that, that whole scene turned me off. And so I never the contempt. Yeah. And w- was Harris particular? I think that's true. You know, I don't find him particularly hateful, but he approaches some topics like he talks a lot about Islam and he, he just has like a bone to pick. And yeah. I don't think he comes at it from necessarily a place of contempt, but he does want the world to be a better place, I guess. And yeah. so he talks, he thinks a lot about this stuff. And personally, I'm not really interested in that stuff at all. Like the, the Middle East for I'm, I'm sorry, but the Middle East is like so far away and doesn't affect my life. And I just try and focus on the present and it's yeah. not here. So I don't really interact. Like I know you're reading a little bit about current events and um, stuff going on around the world and history. And I just, I, I totally ignore all of that stuff. I'm like, I, I'm not even interested unless there's a tornado 20 miles away from me or something. It's not very interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's super interesting to me too, because I'd like, to at least imagine myself as somebody who's interested in just about everything. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what kind of education did you have? And by education, I don't mean like, where did you go to school? But when you started thinking about ideas and which ones were worth considering, like how, how did that process go for you? 
All right. Start as far back as you want. Sure. Well, now I have to I have to work through this. I know what ideas are most interesting to me, but I'm not sure when they started. When I was really young, I was head over heels for this girl, just like desperately, disgustingly disoriented in love. And I mean, from from young, I she was on my radar when I was five, six. Wow. And yeah, by second, third grade, it was like when she was close to me, I would get scared. Um, That's so and sweet. I was I was in this really small school, and we were in the same grade in every single class, including gym, etc. From kindergarten through ninth grade. After the, after that, I went to public school, but that. Um, those immense feelings like that was super formative. Like you can't go through that and not be interested in emotions and relationships and all of that. Um, so I became hyper-focused on that and hyper-focused on like how I manage my own emotions. After that, like I went to college for um, econ with a minor in sociology. So just very interested in the way people are interacting at every scale. Um and then when I got out of school, what I mostly interacted with were like fiction books where people were having certain relationships, um, read a lot about like, I guess, self-help, psychology, philosophy, not even a lot of philosophy, but a little bit of philosophy. It was just drier than all the, you know, the best-selling self-help books and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of fiction, you know. And fiction was always great. Like I spent one summer just on the beach running, listening to uh, the Foundation series, just every single book in the Foundation series on yeah. audiobook, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, that that's basically been my education. And I guess I was talking earlier about being hyper-local and my life and my mind are super hyper-local. So I'm always interacting with the relationships that I'm having in that moment. Uh, or that day or whatever's going on. And I'm not really overly focused about anything that happened like more than three months ago. So I'm just always, I guess, um, really focused on what's going on, what's going on today and tomorrow. And, and that's pretty much it. Interesting. Did yeah. one follow-up question. Did you ever have a Rome phase? Where I was building something? No, no, no. Just like where you were super interested in Rome. Oh, like SPQR. Um, No. <laughs> never, never. I was never big on history. Um, like I read about Michelangelo and never, never really. Be, I would read nonfiction. Yeah, but it was never history. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Sorry. Interesting. No, no, no. I'm not disappointed. I'm just, I'm just trying to work through it. Like, sure. I was tweeting about this maybe a month ago. How uh -huh. you know most kids have a dinosaur phase. Yeah. But then yeah. a lot of kids and it's mostly boys will have a Rome phase mm. where you just get really into, you know, like Mediterranean legends and myths. And I mean, okay. Yeah. Maybe the Greeks are involved too, but like Rome mm. and, and where, where you just see, you develop this idea of there being this enormous civilization that existed for hundreds of years, just, just millennia in the, in the past. And something about that is really, I don't know, really grabs a lot of guys and so you can see this right with like rome mm -hmm. squad on twitter the you know people who will just like start getting hype about rebuilding the roman empire and, and like returning it and right. i wonder I, what's I have a comeback for this actually and it's yeah. that 
despite my appearance for what people that know what I look like, I'm actually mostly Italian um, in my background. So no I shit. go back. Yeah, I go back. Like I have a hundred years of like Italian American ancestors. So like goes way, way back. Like you got to go back to, um, I'm not going to say my name, but it's my name. And he, he lived in Italy and it was like more than a hundred years ago. Um, and then everybody up to me, like the past six, you know, great grandfather, blah, 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 all had my name. So, so like with the Italian Americanness, um, it's kind of like Rome, like that's so yesterday, like that's not what's up. What's up is, you know, Italian American, like that's where we are. That's what we care yeah. about. And the, the Italians are kind of like, we don't really respect them as much. It's kind of like, we're proud to have come from them, but they're not the in-group. Yeah. Right? They're not Italian Americans. So we don't really care that much. I, I wonder if it's an Anglo thing. There's a, there's a book called Corelli's Mandolin and mm-hmm. uh, it's, I mean, it's historical fiction. I'm not going to really ruin the plot. So there's this island, this Greek island, and it's invaded by Italians for various mm. reasons during during World War II. And at one point, there's a British spy who lands on the island to organize a resistance. And he meets this, this Greek shepherd. And the shepherd thinks he's an angel because he comes out of the sky and he's tall and fair. And he speaks to this Greek shepherd in ancient Greek, because of course he does. Right. I mean, that's what you're going to learn if you're, if, if you're an upper-class Englishman in in the early 20th century. And at one point he starts coordinating with the Italians and he immediately starts speaking to them in Latin because of course he does. Right. And I, and, and so like this mania for the ancient world, I wonder, I wonder if it is disproportionately Anglo in origin. It could be, you know, that makes some sense. Like just this, yeah, and then, I mean, you know, there's the whole Egyptology thing too. Although Schliemann was German, so it can't be entirely Anglo. Maybe it's just Germanic. Like, I genuinely the, have no, I have no idea. Okay, so this is my background on history. So, yeah, yeah, fair, fair. Like, like <laughs> yeah, eighth sorry. and ninth grade, eighth and ninth grade, I was like, oh, I know American history. This is cool. And yeah. then, like, I went through like history and AP history, and people would be like learning in class, and I'd be asleep. And then they'd be like, you're going to fail out. And then you just get like a perfect grade and be like, I already spent 12 years learning this. I don't need to learn it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm good. So after that point, I just dropped it 100% after yeah. like ninth grade. No, I get it. It's, it's, I, I have the same, um, the same issue with my dad, whose mm. history teacher was the basketball coach at his school. And there was some car accident <laughs> that killed a bunch of basketball players while he was in school. And I guess the coach was just a, a total emotional wreck after this. And so they, like my dad in his world history course got up through like Greece and then it just yeah. stopped and he didn't learn anything else. And he, he never, he never made up for it, but even still he was the guy who bought that entire Durant series and I guess never read them. And, mm. but I did. So, so take that dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So one, one, one other question that I have about history, which I mean, like I realized this is not something that you've been into, but you were talking about learning philosophy and uh-huh. did that include a lot of ancient philosophers? My relationship with ancient philosophy is like touch and go. Um, I'm kind of all over the place. I don't actually have a framework of thought. Like I read the Vedas, a little bit of the Mahabharata and um, like, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, but 
I wouldn't even say I really studied them. Like I did yeah. a surface level being like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. I kind of understand the concepts generally. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, so I didn't write any books about it. But I tried at one point to make a like a genealogy of philosophy, and then I realized it's impossible. Yeah. So so I gave up pretty quick. Have Durant Durant has a good book on this. Uh the the history of philosophy, I think. Mm-hmm. Or the story of philosophy. Something like that. Anyway, it's really good. And he he just kind of like clips through the entire Western canon. I don't think he does too much on like, uh, you know, Eastern antecedents of philosophy in the West. I think he views it as almost entirely separate traditions. Although it's probably less true now than it used to be. If that's true, that's, that's super interesting, right? Like it's kind of like comparing two birds that grew up in two completely geographical situations that if they were completely separate, which which they weren't, but if they were completely separate, then there would be so much information about like the similar ideas that come about in different ways. And it, it's much more fascinating that that's true. And it's actually kind of a shame that things are so globalized now that there's nothing that ever exists in, in a vacuum so much. Yeah. Tyler Cowen, Tyler Cowen had a piece about that maybe 10 years ago where he he, he was framing globalization as as the following there are fewer things in total but they're mm-hmm. like you know there, there are just not as many strange little niche restaurants out of the way in you know in backwoods china or whatever where where you can right. go and get something that's truly strange and wondrous and new to you but also at the same time, the trade-off is that if you go to any one place, the variety of what's available is likely to be quite a lot greater than it otherwise would be. So like, you know, in Seattle, you can get, you know, Thai food or Indian food or, you know, Ethiopian food or probably Mongolian food. And I mean, at least you can in Minneapolis. There's a really good, really good shitty Mongolian barbecue out there. And like, you can get all of these different things. You don't have to travel somewhere else to like encounter this. But also like some of the smaller things are just getting pushed off the map. So like it's a better world if you're stuck in one city, but a worse world if you can easily travel across borders. I, I think about this stuff a lot. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's it's it's just not like the the mid 19th century where you could really just go to another country. If if you were, say, an Englishman, you have this ability to travel and see all sorts of things in the world. And most of them were really weird. I wonder if. There is a single Chinese American restaurant in China. Maybe not. It's just an, an idea for someone listening. But yeah, it's the the monoculture problem, right? It's yeah. um that's why like if I was to go to France or something, I wouldn't want to go to Paris cuz that's going to be s- more similar to what I've experienced than the countryside or or the places that are a little bit more separated from the globalized influence, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, I'm thinking now of like anything on history that I was actually um, captured by, but it's like, it's like nothing. I was more interested always in like the lore of video games or um, the lore of of fiction that I was always, you know, too busy working on that, I guess. Yeah, no, no, I... I completely respect it, um, even if I don't understand it in the slightest. <laughs> Man, so, um, so, but all right. So you spend a lot of time studying emotion and thought on the way that people mm-hmm. interact. And what what do you see? 
What do you see as coming out of a systematic study of that? I mean, I, I make fun of my wife, for example, for going into the library and I guess checking out every book on psychology and self-help and just, just reading mm-hmm. all of those to learn how to interact right. with people. Did, did you find that helpful in the end? The whole self-help thing was actually fairly new. I would say in the past three years, I've been interacting with those ideas. Up until then, it was just like fine-tuning my cope. Yeah. Like just really fine-tuning my cope. Fine-tuning your cope. Yeah. That was, I mean, think about it. Think about being a small kid, like nine, 10 years old, and you are just hardcore in love, and you're seeing this girl like every day, and every class of every day, hours and hours a day. And she's not interested in you. And you like, so you're thinking like way meta levels of, oh, I'm not going to like even look at her because I don't want to make her feel uncomfortable. Like oh, all of that all the time. And so you you just get mega cope, just hardcore, yeah. <laughs> hardcore cope at that level. Yeah. That, and then you, then you wow. have to change it because, right, I went to public school and in public school, I was super popular day one. Everybody loved me. I was like the most popular kid in every single click for some reason played football. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, everybody likes me all of a sudden. This is crazy. And then in college, things were just really vibe, I guess. Yeah. So it was just kind of like always finding myself in these new situations, adapting to them, but coming at them with that same kind of curiosity, I guess of, I had already spent so much time looking at how I was feeling and how other people are feeling and that interaction And I think actually, I never thought of this, but that actually kind of leads me to podcasting, right? Because I'm listening to people and I'm trying to shape myself around their, not only their personalities, but at every level, uh, their emotional responses and kind of fine tuning my, my listening capability. So this whole thing has been like a lifelong project in a way. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe what I really want to get at, and I think this is interesting. So you pay a lot of attention to other people and like you try to make them comfortable and like just sort of craft a social situation where something good is created. And what I think I'm really getting at, especially is whether, whether this is mostly a matter of like gnosis or epistemy or metis or like where the skill comes from. Right. Because mm. the, the reason that I make fun of moon a little bit about reading psychology and self-help books is that I think implicitly there's this idea that being able to interact with other people skillfully and successfully is either a matter of some kind of an inborn trait or just a matter of practice. And the idea of getting it from a book seems maybe a little bit outlandish. Yeah. It's shallow books. Books are always going to be shallow. Right. In the same way that words and memories are always going to be shallow compared to kind of fighting in the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, grappling. It's never remembering grappling is never going to be anything like grappling. Mm-hmm. So this is the problem with books is that they can only kind of give you um, a little bit of a start for you to start practicing it in the now. Um, and it, it, it can be useful in that way. It's kind of like if you read the Stoics, I think the vast majority of people are going to get a lot of value from reading the Stoics if they're coming from a point of just being totally emotionally erratic and being extremely reactive. And then you read the Stoics and you go, oh, wow, I can just be in control of everything that's in my internal state, even though maybe you know everything around me is falling apart. And that can give people a lot of, of power. 
Um, of course, you can move, you know, beyond that. But the thing that I think is the way I worked through that entire framework was, um, I, I guess, not so systematically, but it was more reactive, especially in the beginning. And it was extremely iterative. So because I was like enduring this true, true, like emotional torture. Yeah. It was terrible. I remember I, I broke my leg and my tibia complete break and the bone Ooh, went into itself and God. it like got crushed. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that, that was rough. And uh, I was nine and I remember laying in bed, like unable to move except to get sharp pains throughout my body. And I remember noting this isn't quite as bad as daily heartbreak. Like, so that's, that's where I was at mentally. And <laughs> so that like, so I was just constantly trying to iterate through, um, doing something that would work. Like I would pray to God nonstop. And I, I mean, just emotionally and mentally everything you could do, but it wasn't like I was learning things and getting better. It was more like, okay, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. And, um, of course the, the foolish thing, you know, as a child is you think you have no power, but then when I went to like a public school, pretty much everything got better immediately. Yeah. You know, so that says a lot about controlling your environment and controlling, uh, your internal state too, that the degree to which you can control where you are does a lot to control what you experience. Um, so after you have an awakening like that of like, oh, my, my life from, age five to age 16 doesn't really have to be that way. Um, that's like a, a big awakening, but up to that point, it was mostly just self management, managing, learning to do like self soothing, yeah. um, focusing on, you know, video games and schoolwork and stuff like that. Uh, as much as you could, I don't know what the final result is because I've never been anyone else outside yeah. of psychedelics, <laughs> but but I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, like how I could communicate my daily internal life to anyone else, except to say that, like, I guess I'm paying attention. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which feels like the most important thing. Like if you're, if you're noticing things that are happening and just like you're yeah. actively aware of them or even subconsciously aware of them, that lets you do things that you just couldn't do if you're simply ignoring the, like mm -hmm. whatever's in front of you. Like mm -hmm. I, I think paying attention is the most important skill. Um, so have you read one last question on this thread? Have you, have you read any of the Epicureans? I know about the Epicureans, but I don't think I ever read the Epicureans. No. Okay. Um, I know you're Epicurean. Somewhere. Yeah. Loosely. Yeah. Um, the reason I ask is you're, you're talking about how you have this focus on like sort of the day to day and the hyper local, and that mm -hmm. feels pretty Epicurean to me, like sort of this, the sense of not troubling yourself too much with the outside world, with things that maybe are going to be problems in the long run, although that's tricky, yeah. but that's my default stance. I, I would say, yeah, I don't think I fold like squarely into any one camp, but that general idea of like, don't worry about stuff that doesn't affect your life. I, I have to agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, like there, there are various Epicurean lines that are very explicitly, you know, don't go and read a lot of books. Don't worry yourself about politics too much. Like that's only going to make you unhappy and drive you nuts, and you can't control it anyway. So just you probably know, get you killed. Probably get you killed. Probably so just get you killed. Yeah. Cherish your friends, tend your garden, have a good time. Yeah. Um. So, so what do psychedelics have to do with all this? 
psychedelics were the first time that I could really see how someone else might be experiencing their life. This gave me a lot of empathy, I guess, for people that experience anxiety. Like I had mm. certain manifestations of anxiety, but I had nothing like the anxiety that you can experience on psychedelics about um, just the intensity of experience. And I mean, I had some experience. I, don't, I wouldn't call them bad trips, but yeah. I would say they were experiences where um, they were extremely challenging and where I was around people I did not know, um, um, you know, yeah. and you just go, oh, oh, some people might just feel something like this a lot of the time. And I am like fairly disagreeable and really, quite, yeah. I, I think so. Like I say stuff on the on the on the feed all the time where I'm like, I just said uh how like post rats and, and rats, the, the way in which they're similar is they're both immoral. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I yeah. I'm gonna ask about that later. Sure, sure. But like right, like I'm willing to push people people's buttons and this again gets to the whole podcasting thing because like I can ask someone something that I maybe know they find uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm I could just be like cool with that. And I'm also, I'm like not neurotic at all. Uh-huh. Um, so when I was in that mindset of like a little bit higher neuroticism, uh, a little bit higher fear, I guess. And this intensity of experience, I was like, oh, okay, this, this could be, you know, it was like experiencing somebody else's experience of reality in some way. And every trip is different. So that gives you a much wider uh, library of cognition in a way. Yeah. That's very interesting to me. I've the trips that I've experienced have not just just uniformly not been high anxiety, and that could mm -hmm. just be a matter of how you know how how I've set them up and conducted them. I mean, it's sure. you know it's usually around Salento. You want to hear a story? Yes. <laughs> so we went to a, a restaurant, which you don't need to do. Okay, so. We uh, were on Minecraft doing 25 INBOME. This is being done in Minecraft, all right? <laughs> right. So we were in Minecraft doing 25 INBOME, and we went to a restaurant there, which is dumb because you don't get hungry when you're uh -huh. doing this. And uh, so it was not very good role playing. But so we, so there we were in the restaurant, and there were like these lights. That Wait, were like you're pinpointing. playing, you're just to be clear, you're playing Minecraft on psychedelics. Uh -huh. Okay. Must have right. been that must have been interesting. No, I'm in Minecraft and my character is doing the psychedelics. Oh, okay. Yeah, at this restaurant. Wasn't and the, the lights, the lights are like pinpoint lights that are like beaming into your eyes. Like yeah. actually, this is they we were against a wall, and so the lights were coming down straight at us. And then so like the, the lighting was harsh. And um the table in the corner was like a, a table of like 10 people and they were magicians like not like kind of they were actual magicians and they were wearing like leather and uh and like these i don't know they're like glittery stuff and they kept like getting up and like switching chairs as if it was a speed dating thing and oh, no we were just we were just freaking out <laughs> like what is going on we have this table full of food and nobody's eating because yeah. there's like of us and we're all just a mess and it was it, like that it was it was stressful and like the, the waitress kept like coming up to us and like trying to talk to us <laughs> and it was we did our best but yeah it was it was a just total 
clusterfuck, absolutely insane. And uh, I don't, I don't recommend going to restaurants you've never been to before in Minecraft if uh, you have not done that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. That's interesting. I I have always in Minecraft uh, had psychedelics just like at my place, had music queued up. You know, uh-huh. maybe some food available, but not really because you know why do you want to eat? Yeah. And um, sometimes it, texture is cool, but that's about it. Yeah. 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 And. I mean, you know, I've had, I've like gone to the kitchen and had a hamburger bun and that's always felt really good. <laughs> with some yogurt. With, no, not even with yogurt, just a plain hamburger bun. Oh, wow. And, um, but I don't know, the, the experience is usually more internal than external. Like mm-hmm. I've had very good conversations with, with Celine about, you know, different things in, in the middle of a Minecraft trip, but you know, it's, it's more been a matter of me just kind of dissolving parts of myself and then watching them sort of be reconstructed on the come down mm. and, and mm. coming back and appreciating and then seeing them more completely or better integrated with myself in the process. I, I have a fear. Now, I don't know if this is a legitimate fear because it has not happened to me, but I have a fear that this deconstruction, like yeah. that, that reconstruction can go wrong. Yeah. And I have a theory that this is kind of what trauma is that. So when somebody goes into an extremely intense experience, they're mm-hmm. doing a little bit of this deconstructing. Hmm. Yeah. And then when they're reconstructing, maybe something gets flipped. I don't know how, how this, any of this works. Cause it's not actually spatial, but maybe the way Everything the mind reintegrates, Yeah. <laughs> but maybe the way the mind reintegrates is there's, there's a wrinkle there or something. And, uh, I, I feel like that is, what must be happening for some people because there is like post psychedelic trauma that some yeah. people experience. And obviously we have PTSD, which psychedelics help. So like people can do therapy with shrooms or other psychedelics where they're reintroducing this deconstruction and it's kind of like they're getting put back together properly again. Yeah. I don't know. But maybe, maybe it goes wrong. I mean, you know, every, Every Minecraft trip that I've had, I've I've very much wanted to have like a pretty serene environment and to do yeah. it around people that I trust implicitly. Yeah. I mean, just just because that's like, preferable. Yeah, I mean, like I wouldn't want to do it around a bunch of people I don't know. I mm. I mean, just you know, the temptation to go and harass somebody who's on drugs like that seems like it's pretty strong for a certain group of people, and mm-hmm. I don't want to expose myself to it. It, it yeah, so. Okay, going to a restaurant. I mean, like even being in Publix at all seems a bit much. Yeah. But the first time I did it, we were at a lake in Minecraft. And as it got darker, I don't know if anybody that is in the Bay Area might know about this. But as it got darker, there were a bunch of people that came to the lake and they had like these tricked out bicycles with neon lights on them. Mm. But I mean, it was like a circus like there were all kinds of people, you know, yeah. some that were very tall and some that were very short. And they were like um, dragging toasters on wheels that also had neon lights on them. Mm. And are you sure this happened? Yeah, <laughs> 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 we, we have pictures, but uh, but it was it, it's just the kind of thing where you go like this. This is what's happening right now. Like of all the things, this is what's going on right now. And yeah, so. That's a cool thing about being in the world. It's kind of like, oh man, if you think about this in a magical way, it's like you're exposing yourself to this crazy hyped up serendipity. 
Um, but yeah, they had like a, they brought a refrigerator under the under the bridge, and yeah, and they were just dancing and drinking, and like it, it was like a dance circle. Yeah, where the circle the outside of the circle was neon bikes, and then like people would be dancing in the middle, and everybody would be like rooting them on, and then they would change it up. I don't know. Yeah, no, know. no, no, no. That was my first visit to San Francisco. I was like, okay, this is not like New York. This is a different you jumped thing. Right in. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, so, why are we immoral? Like, what's what's that? Why are, why are post rats immoral? Yeah, or rats? I mean, like you're sure. lumping us together. So, sure. So. The easy way to answer this question is that you're immoral according to, and I say you, but it's actually like I was a post, I was a post rat until we all decided post rats weren't cool anymore. But, uh, but basically it's because we're, we're starting at this point of disregarding the deep, important religious truths and that morality of, um, you know, having some kind of structure. And then, so we throw that away and say, morality is what you make it. And then we're proceeding past that point of saying, let's accept everything. When you say, let's accept everything more or less, your moral structure gets really, really weak. So you could say, oh, we're going to just, you know, ignore all of the things that morality applies to, except for, you know, I guess, respecting what people do in their homes. You know, like it, it gets really, really sparse. And so people are becoming immoral in that they have very, very weak morality. Is this, is this sort of a uh, rehashing of if God is dead, then everything is permitted? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. Nietzsche said everything I've ever thought before. So yeah, yeah. Fair. So, <laughs> so, so it's not necessarily something that is rationalist or post-rationalist per se, but that there is very often a, disregard of some deontological origin that somebody had perhaps growing up. Sure. I don't, I don't really participate with like the whole deontology consequentialist virtue ethics framework. Like yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think that's nonsense. I, I could talk a little bit about how I frame ethics, but that's not how I, I frame it. Um, and a bunch of people could interpret how I frame it within their view. And that's, that's fine. But, uh, T- who who wrote about this a little bit is Teddy Rackevelt. Shout out Teddy Rackevelt. Love that yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. And um, he just on his blog, he just like shits on everyone and just says how everybody's doing everything wrong. And he comes at it from a place of I don't know if the word is wisdom, but like coolness, and it's great. Uh, but. He, when I wrote that, I was actually quoting him because I've been like damning him and stuff. And, uh, so, so that's kind of where it's coming from. And also a little bit of my conversation with Lithros, Scott Mm. Hansen, awesome guy. And so he was talking a lot about justice and ethics and morality. And what Lithros said was that ethics is a way of justifying our, um, overriding morality so that we have this this basic like childlike moral framework of what is right and wrong and then we use ethics to say oh actually everything's permissible uh-huh. right and yeah. so rats and post rats are both intelligent enough to deny their deep morality interesting so i think what so so there's this like sort of inborn natural morality and ethics says it primarily like in, in lithroth is Lithros is framing 
ethics is a means of justifying whatever behavior you want to do that clashes with what you know is actually good. You don't even necessarily need to want to do it because society can tell you the way ethics should work. So it's yeah. also a way for the egregore to kind of like put worms in your brain. Right. And okay, so it's not so much a matter of like under this framework, isn't just about everybody immoral? No. So like the reason they're not in like a seeing like a, a state kind of way or um, I I wouldn't say Hayek anyway, but they people are moral when they interface with the present and uh-huh. don't think about it really and do what seems right. That's moral. Moral is not something you come to after like, you know, cranking the numbers out and seeing how many lives are going to be saved on a spreadsheet. Right. Right. So morality is fundamentally you're interfacing with reality and and feeling it out. So it's more intuitional. I'm I'm not crazy about the concept of intuition because I think it's insufficient, but it's essentially the result of one's improvisation with the world. And like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, the quality that we are producing, aiming toward the good, that is morality. The ethics is when we overthink it. The ethics is when we create frameworks that are rigid. The ethics is what we think about the results should be. And so, um, for instance, we can look at the 2008 crash. And right, so the ethical thing would be if all contracts were served and like everyone was foreclosed on and there was no forgiveness of any kind. But the, the flexibility in the system to say, oh, wait, actually, maybe the rules aren't necessarily good all the time. And that flexibility that gives us the room to participate in the present as we morally should, that is more moral. So all of the morality comes from the flexibility and the ability to choose in the moment where the ethics and the rules completely violate that because it um, hamstrings us and the actions we can take in the moment. This feels a little Rousseauian. Could be. I never read Rousseau. Sort of like, uh, I mean, almost kind of like noble savagery in a sense, which isn't directly Rousseau, but like, you know, so a human being living in the woods for, for his entire life and like speaking the language of wolves or whatever, like if he encountered somebody, he would probably be good having been pushing back, pushing back because morality is, is not only cultivated from like the DNA, but it's also learned over time. So the indigenous peoples, for instance, had this beautiful interaction with nature, again, like seeing like a state where they developed this deep thing that evolved over time to serve them. Whereas when you have a tyrant or you have Marxism or you have a central planner um, where you're cutting down the nuance in the ecosystem, right? So it's not just a guy in the woods, but it's a tribe in the woods and a people's in the woods, right? Are the Sentinelese acting morally? Are the who? Uh, the Sentinelese are a group of islanders who have maintained a um, like aggressive separation from the outside world since God knows how long. There was some like British pedophile who went uh, among them in the 1800s, and they were really mad about that. And ever since then, if if you go onto the Sentinel Islands, which are somewhere in the Indian Ocean, uh-huh. um, you will be killed. They they will kill you with bows and arrows and spears. You know, like when there are helicopters or drones that fly over, they aggressively attack them. So, like, does does this 
does does your model of ethics or morality have anything like predictions about how they act or any like any commentary on their behavior or their decision to do that? Hmm. No. Fair. <laughs> no, I've, I don't know. Okay, here's the thing. I always just come from the assumption that I don't actually really know anything. Yeah, so yeah. literally I'm making all of this up. Yeah, Nobody no, should base their life on anything I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just like, I mean, you know, just, just trying to push the boundaries of this. And like, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think that you're thinking of it ethically. Maybe is mm-hmm. my ethics just like, you're being... looking for the rules. You're looking for the rules. And I'm saying, just figure it out. Just figure it out. Sometimes figuring it out means like doing math and stuff, but in general, like it's just about having that flexibility to do what's right. This feels, very, this feels very post-rationalist. Like what mm. kind of framing can I adopt in any second that lets me act in such a way that is perhaps good? I'll put it this way that, okay, so you have like Confucius and you have uh, Lao Tzu, which I might be mispronouncing, but it doesn't matter. You all know who I'm talking about. Yep. Um, and the Confucius framework, right, actually kind of comes from the slow development of society and so it's good and then you have like Lao Tzu which is basically like just be in the moment and do the right thing which is kind of what I'm saying but it's good too so it's kind of like so the individual has all of these internal schema and it's when we're ignoring all of them and glorifying one of them such as the rational intellect that we are being evil. We can be, we begin to become evil. And so it's really allowing the internal ecosystem of having all of these things interact in a way that's, that's in harmony. That's good. So I'm not saying like, Oh, totally forget about like filial piety or whatever. I'm saying like, let all those pieces interact and be flexible in the moment. Don't apply strict rules. Yeah. I think there is, yeah, I mean, so like if you if you were to like just kick the idea of rules off to the side because rules are something that you're going to impose on other people perhaps or like use to mislead other people. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. But when I think about people who are clever, like there's an extent to which you can be not evil about coming up with systems or or like means of, you know, misleading people. And, you know, eventually like, to the extent that people are rational or at least desire like having some kind of rationale for the way that they behave. I think it makes, I think it makes sense that say rationalists would want to come up with an explanation for why, what they want to do anyway is good. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. like, like there's sort of a justifying the ways of God to man, except justifying the ways of yourself to yourself. And right. like, ultimately I think maybe you just have to be honest with it. You know, like, am I coming up with this system of rules, this explanation, because I want to do something that otherwise I wouldn't be permitted to do? Yes. And I, I think we're really good at that. I'm good at that. I yeah. mean, when I, when I was when I was two and I was prohibited from going into the knife drawer in the kitchen because there were really sharp knives in there. And I knew that it was wrong to do that. Mm-hmm. But I came up with the rule for myself that if I were playing pirate, it would be okay because pirates have knives. That's all I knew about pirates. They had knives and they held them menacingly and they would like run their finger along the edge of it. And so when I wanted to go into the knife drawer, I immediately decided I was playing pirate and I pulled out the biggest butcher's knife in the knife drawer. 
and I held it up and I ran my finger along the edge and that ended about how you'd expect mm-hmm. with, with me putting the knife back and very like calmly going into my dad to, to my dad who was shaving in the bathroom and asking him for a bandaid. And he just kind of looked at my finger and gave me a bandaid and didn't ask me any questions. And I really appreciated <laughs> that. It was a formative moment for us. But uh-huh. like that, that kind of just inventing a rule to let me do something that I knew by other rules was bad. But I think there's, I mean, like, I think you can also come at it from the perspective of like, all right, I'm very inventive. I can come up with lots of stories. Here's something that I know is good. Like, here's what being a dick in the situation would be like. And here's a way that I can explicate that and use that to even perhaps come up against people who are trying to flex on rules to enable them to be dicks and, and fight that impulse. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think it just comes down Mm -hmm. to like, are you a good enough dude to not use these powers for evil? If I don't know, it feels very dragon eating its tail to me. Like I would say it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Like, okay. So so I'm, I'm talking to you about morality and some people might be thinking that, um, I am proposing people live a certain way. And that's not now what's going on because I have no control over. Maybe I will worry about that when I have kids someday, but for now, you you absolutely (laughs) will. I'll do, do my best. But, but for now, uh, it's just like, this, this is my, the way I'm living my life. Right. And I am communicating and expressing myself to others because that's what I like. That's the kind of guy I am. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, people can push back on my ideas and they do that. And I go, oh, okay, cool. Like, I hear you expressing yourself and fine. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, cool story. Do you, yeah. do you, do you ever get on fight, get in fights on Twitter? Uh, no, no. Um, like the way it goes is I'll usually be expressing myself and then somebody will get kind of nasty and I'll just be like, yeah, you're not being cool. And yeah. <laughs> like that, that's that's like the limit but like yeah you shouldn't interact with people that way so it's not really a fight it's like initially i'm expressing myself and then they get weird and then i go no thanks so i i wouldn't call that a fight no not really so what what do you think is going on with people who go on to twitter to like start shit oh well i know i i know for myself what i was doing because i used to do that all the time really uh what, oh, what i would get so wrapped up in that man like when i was young when i was on like penny arcade or cheatcc.com or uh i would be on reddit and i would just see these things and i'd be like you are wrong on the internet bro and i would just argue 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 and it was the tyranny of the intellect i needed to status signal that i was superior and you know that was my programming and i just felt better making other people wrong yeah i don't know i guess that's what was going on and yeah so i would just be on the internet tearing people apart and um I mean, not really even entirely tearing people apart. Because if you do this long enough and you are young enough, you will get somebody older and smarter than you that just shuts you down really hard <laughs> and humbles you. And you'll you'll still argue more, but you'll still you'll be like a little bit more careful next yeah. time. You'll be like, oh, okay, oh, th- these people aren't just you know sixteen yeah. online being big dicks. But but that's basically what it was. It was just status fighting doing the whole online monkey dance with with no repercussions and uh being trying to be cool and in those environments like you know i i was never a 4chan guy but you can imagine 
uh, on 4chan how like that's the ecosystem. Like we have something different on Twitter, but the ecosystem in those areas is like fighting for status. That's what's going on. I mean, do you, do you think that there's, so what caused you to change and like be less focused and like pugilistics for status? I was that way for a long time. I, I don't know when it changed for sh- like for certain or like what threshold I passed. Um, but I definitely, I was very disagreeable and antagonistic and uh, argumentative. Yeah. I, I would always just like somebody would say they believe something. And I'd be like, oh yeah, why? <laughs> you know? And I would immediately just be like, oh, like, I would enjoy that combat, the intellectual combat, just because like the way I justified it was that truth can always withstand the fire of debate or whatever, which is nonsense. But that's, that's kind of like the way I approached it was like the true, the truth is always true no matter how you blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm making any sense, but essentially I was going in there and trying to external ethics you were using to justify your bad behavior. Yeah. Bingo. Yes. You got it. I'm glad I was able to persuade you via parable. <laughs> it's very, very, very Jesus-like. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I get that a lot. <laughs> uh, don't read the ending. Um, so, so yeah, okay. So that's Revelations how you, is weird. They yeah, should make so, an anime. So what? What? Yeah. Hmm. Need to think about that. So what? So so what happened that that caused you to like shift away from that stance? Like, I think I think I was. I think I was dumb enough to play that game for long enough, and then, but not stupid enough to play that game forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not saying I'm brilliant, but it was just like at a certain point I was like, oh, this this is not serving me. Like this is occasionally ruining my relationships. And oh no, know. oh yeah, sure. I mean, being that kind of Did guy, you get in a fight with your girlfriends. <laughs> I was politics. I was a little bit of a, like an like an intellectual bully. I was a little bit of an intellectual bully. Sure, like I somebody see, would yeah. say something, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't be cruel, and I wouldn't yeah. be rude, but I would just be like, oh, what do you think that? You know, even politely. And they'd yeah. say, oh, okay. Well, what about this situation? And they'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. And I'd be like, oh, oh, okay. And like just that is enough to kind of break somebody a little bit if you do yeah. it enough. And so just having like that, what I thought was, you know, intellectual integrity, but really wasn't. It was, it was really like I was trying to help them destroy their own beliefs. And that's that's not the kind of pill you should be giving your partners. I That's interesting. I don't think think I have ever brought any of this into a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been a monster toward people who are my friends. Yeah. But in my case, I felt mostly defensive, right? Like somebody yeah. would say something and they'd say it sort of aggressively. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, just yes and them, but really aggressively. And um, that's a totally different thing. Is it? Yeah, but it, it's. I think. I think it's the same thing in spirit. But that sounds almost like passive, almost passive aggressive. It's like the guest culture thing you were talking about. Well, okay, but I mean, like asking somebody, "Oh, why do you believe that?" Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in, in guest culture, doing something yeah. like that. Oh, well. Suppose <laughs> if you enjoy that sort of thing, like 
That's, that's well is so good. We don't use well enough. We're yeah. Like, well, Weller man. Um, um, but yeah. Okay. So like, anyway, so, so eventually you, you just like burned out on it and put aside childish things. Yeah. Yeah. I just figured I, I just realized I was being immature and it wasn't serving me and it's way better. Okay. It, when you're wrapped up in that rationality approach, it's very hard. It's like very, very hard to just be curious. Yeah. To just be like enthusiastically and genuinely curious. And for me, probably the hardest hill for me to get over was that I'm not smarter than other people. And that, um, because this was like my demon was that, oh, I was in wealth management. I was doing well in New York city and then things didn't go my way. And then I'm like, you know, walking in wet jeans to work at a burrito spot for $10 an hour. And in my head, I'm this incredibly intelligent, powerful guy that has no proof of his intelligence and no power to speak of. Yeah. Right. So that was, you know, my, my tragic fall right there. And I think, I think that was probably the trigger now that I'm thinking about it. That was probably the trigger trigger of like just the humility just like beating me to a pulp yeah. being like maybe this intelligence that you think like, like that you glorify isn't it. Maybe it's not the important thing. Like maybe there's something else. And I think just that little bit of curiosity was enough to get me on the path to recognizing what is important, you know? Yeah. What do you think there's anything that people shouldn't be Uh, humble about like, okay. So maybe being smart is something where having pride about it in some senses is something that leads directly to a downfall. But are there any things where if you do something, you should be genuinely proud of it and like how, like, like cultivate some amount of pride about having done something or having some ability or trait. I would say that pride in and of itself is not necessarily good. However, if you can cultivate gratitude toward your immediate situation, that might mean being grateful for the happiness you are feeling toward achieving something. And when you practice that, when you practice that gratitude, that openness and that curiosity and that attention, you are robbing pride of all its hubris, right? And then you can see that emotion not as something that you deserve or, or something that edifies you, but as a gift. Yeah. Okay. So you, you were telling me that. And I started thinking about like people who are well, humble bragging, right? Sure. I, to, yeah. to, to grab the, the term from common use. And this got me thinking about ethics again. Sorry, uh-huh. we're coming back to this. Like, I think so. So like if you're humble bragging, you're, in a set, there, there's a way in which you're lying to yourself, right? You're saying something that that's coming across as humble, but you're really doing it because you're the opposite of the thing. I would say a humble brag, a, an actual hum, humble brag is with the intent to edify the ego, right? Yeah. If you're humble bragging on accident, it's not humble bragging. Right? Yeah, so I could, sure. I, I could say something from my life where I'm just talking about my life, but if I'm not trying to status signal, yeah, I'm doing that, then I'm not humble bragging. Like if I'm not trying to put myself above other people in any way, it's not humble bragging. So then, yeah, that's how I think. Of it. Yeah. What, what I'm thinking about in particular is 
the the criticism that one could level against people who are humble bragging that is also a criticism that I think maybe implicitly you're leveling against uh, certain certain gray tribe people is that they're lying to themselves. Like they know that something is bad and they're coming up with an elaborate justification that allows them to like sort of distract from the fact that it's bad and they shouldn't be doing it by, in this case, maybe by justifying it through, through this elaborate, but maybe hollow set of ethics or rules. And it, mm-hmm. that just, that just, I don't know if that resonates with you, but it feels like me to be a very difficult problem to solve because if you can lie to yourself, you can get yourself to do just about anything. And also like the first step in lying to anybody is lying to yourself. And most people are really good at it. I mean, like from a young age, you know, mm-hmm. I was just, I was just playing pirate. I was unsure of this stance, but now I'm in it fairly concretely. And that is delusion is bad. Delusion is, if there is any evil, delusion is evil. I, it's possible that there is no evil, but if there is evil, delusion is evil. All delusion is evil. That's, uh, I think, very Zoroastrian. Could like be. The, the old, like, the, the worst sin is lying. Not only lying, but believing a lie. So believe, believing something that is not true. Yeah. I believe this deeply. And um, the, the main thing that was tough for me is that some people get to a better position by deluding themselves. And this is true. But I think that that better position is still not as good as the truth. And when someone is using delusion such as a white lie, for instance. Yeah. The only reason they need to do that is typically to push against another lie, right? The, the, the problem is that we are struggling, that we're not accepting the truth in, in some real way. And now I'm getting a little bit more spiritual. But in general, I think delusion is bad. Lying to yourself is bad. All of that is bad. It just seems we can justify it in the moment because compared to other delusions, they might not seem so bad. What do you think of them? Like if you were to make a top three list, what are the three most prevalent delusions that it seems like people have or classes of delusions? Hmm. This is a good question. Thank you, Igan. The top three delusions people have. I know where you're leading me with this one. I I don't know if I'm leading you anywhere. I'm just trying to like think about (laughs) you know, like as a scholar of delusion, uh-huh. like, and I, I'm kind of right. curious myself too. I'm sort of interrogating myself, but it's difficult yeah. to interrogate yourself about how you're right. deluding yourself. Cause I think I actually, I think I actually answered this question and I'm, I'm just trying to think of the answer I gave. I know that one was that the self is real. Two is that time is real. And <laughs> you're really just going for the big guns. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, yeah okay. I'm dead on. Yeah. So that the self is real, that time is real. And the third one I forget what the third one was, but it's it's probably something to do with like control. Hmm. Free will is real. Determinism mm. is real. Yeah. The, the problem with a lot of these is that they're all the, the same thing. Like believing that the time is real is also believing that the ego is real. And I guess, I, yeah, I guess there it would be agency. There is only one delusion. Hmm. Every yeah. delusion is the same as every other delusion. Hmm. In 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 part, um, 
they're at least part of the, the same delusion, right? And this is this I, I've never thought of it that way, but it's kind of true. But like thinking that your dog is a cat is not the same as thinking time is real. <laughs> but, yeah, but they're they're all a part of the same substance. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, mm. but this is all okay. This is all starting from the separation. Right. So as soon as you start separating things, you have like a hierarchy of truth. Right. So me saying that time is not real, that's actually creating division. So that's not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth that there is like there is one truth. It's emptiness. It's here and now the kingdom of God, etc. But when we move below that and move toward hell, and I don't mean this in the Christian sense, it's just like my own terminology. But when we move toward hell, we start interacting with divisions such as um, time is not real, ego is not real. And then south of there, we start believing in great delusions like I exist, stuff like that. What things are real? We've got a lot of negations. But right like- now. That's it. Boom. Hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> right now. That's it. Just here. Like the the blade's edge of now yeah where every everything is in like that blade's edge of now that's the one thing that's real that's it so like is the past real or is that the past is real to the degree that it can be remembered by you right now so it exists as a memory but that's all it is what do you think of liminal warmth's idea about memory modification if she were to like rewrite her memory to create Mm -hmm. things that didn't happen, but to remember them as if they actually did. Is that Mm -hmm. real? Yes. For her. Yeah. Is fiction real? Fiction is real in the same way that a memory is real. So if you remember it, then it is everything that you remember is real in that it is a memory, but that's not to say that like that event is occurring now it is only experienced now as that memory. So you can remember fiction, but if you remember it as nonfiction or you remember it as as fiction or you remember it as something that actually happened to you, it's real to you in that way. But we must recognize I, that sounds so freaking pedantic. But the, <laughs> no, it's the, good. It's good, the important thing, the important thing to recognize is that everything is developed qualitatively and only has meaning to the degree to which we create it. Right. So saying that there's some noumenon out there that occurred a hundred years ago and is of like some import is only real to you in any way as you interact with it and as you interface it. But once you collapse your experience down to the like not infinitely small, but extremely small moment. Right. You can start to see that each moment is actually extremely simple. That, for instance, you cannot remember your childhood in the moment. You can only remember a very, very tiny slice of your childhood in the moment. And because that's true, most of our experience is extremely simple and you can only feel a few things at a time. And then it's the fact that we are bringing up all this memory on with it. That is why it is so heavy for us. And this is also true for the future, that actually no pain is really so great that we can't endure it for a brief moment, but is the anticipation of great suffering for a great period of time and our ability to imagine it that we suffer so deeply. Okay. So is, are the things that are real, just the things that we're paying attention to? 
what else exists. Yeah, right. Okay. What are the practical implications of this? The practical implications of this is that when you start paying attention really, really tightly on the now, if you can get there, if you can like get your attention to the blades of edge of what's going on right now, things get really loud and like really intense and really exciting. You get really curious. And the result of this is an excitement. Things get less boring. You're more curious and you're more open. You're, you're more, um, I would say human that when a person is at rest and non-improvisational and planning and, and acting within their own play, they're much nearer death. But when you have your focus on the blade's edge of the moment, it's kind of like when you're listening very, very closely to a song, that song becomes more real to you, right? So this heightened open salience is experienced as this vivid living. And so when you cultivate this, when you practice it, this vivid living, which I think I think you're pretty good at this compared to most people. Like I think you are very, very good at being in the moment. And like you've had your conversations with um, Moon about how this comes somewhat naturally to you. And yeah. so you probably experience life a little bit more vividly than people that are just you know, dun, 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 going through the boringness of their day. It comes and goes. Yeah. However, it can be cultivated that you are so open and on that, that blade's edge that um, life is just so incredible. And that's how, uh, have you ever read like Gulag Archipelago? No, I was thinking about buying it the other day and then I didn't. Okay. So I listened to the audiobook. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Yep. And because nice. it's enjoyable and I can sometimes do it at work. But <laughs> <laughs> so I was listening to the audiobook, and there's a story that I, I love in there. And so they're starving in these, um, you know, uh, communist work camps that are basically just death camps. Like they would just put people out into the snow to work and then they would just die. And they, they had so many people that they were bringing into the system that people would just be put to work and die short, shortly thereafter. And they didn't really give them food or anything they needed to survive um, because they didn't really care. Because when you have an ideology that glorifies a certain idea, everything is subsidiary to that. Anyway, so there's this guy in that who is full of, he's starving. He's full of light and acceptance and love. And uh, he's helping Solzhenitsyn, who's memorizing his book word by word, page by page, so that like you could tell him like, oh, page 100, line five, and he could recite it to you yeah. all in memory because he can't write anything down. And that's how we wrote this whole book. Wow. And um, so they're, they have this deep spiritual, deep concentration, and he's just so full of love. And then uh, the next day, Solzhenitsyn finds him with his head caved in he got hit in the head and his his head collapsed and he's dead and to see the way that Solzhenitsyn remembers him so positively and so full of light and so full of meaning and beauty and then you have just this example of of the way that people lived, the people he forgives, Solzhenitsyn forgives, because he can see how he could be there too. How 
him just in slightly different circumstances, not majorly different, slightly different circumstances would have been the guy holding the stick, beating the guy to death. And so his acceptance, right, in that moment and willingness to love this person that's so beautiful and to also love these other people. It's just a great story. It's a really good book. You should check it out. Yeah, yeah. No, I will. Um, so one one other thing that I'm thinking about this, do you see this model of the world as being more true or more useful? If you had to choose. Why are those things at odds? I don't understand. Well, they're not exactly, but um, there's, there's, so there's this, this old claim by guy. I can't remember who it was, whether it was Fisher or Poisson, which is very funny um, linguistically, but, mm-hmm. but famous this, for his distributions. Yes. Um, so basically the, the statement is all models are false and, but mm-hmm. some models are useful. Sure. So what I'm thinking is like, are you framing the world in this way more, maybe your motivations, like, are you framing the world in this way? Because you think it represents something that is deep and true and correct about the world or because it's something about like framing your perception of the world in this way leads to some good outcomes for, for you as an entity and you in the most general sense, like people as entities to the extent that they're different things at all. People do because they're driven to do. And one of these doing drives is curiosity. And I think we are curious and uh, open and interact with the world because it's useful, right? We're, yeah. that's, that's why we're doing it. Everybody that's like, oh, I'm doing this because it's true. That's not really the bottom layer. The thing that, the special thing about the truth, the special thing about the truth is that like you can't get any deeper than the truth. Um, the only thing you can do with the truth is stack delusions on top of them. Mm-hmm. Now, this is useful sometimes. And so you can, um, for instance, let yourself be controlled by your emotions if you want to. And that might be useful some of the times. Like if you if you need to defend yourself, you might just freaking lose it. Yeah, And yeah. maybe that was useful because you survived something or saved a child or something like that. Um, so everything we do because it's useful. Like who would ever choose to do something knowingly useless and now we we can like say oh well people waste their minds and or their their time with like playing video games or whatever but they're playing video games because it's serving them in some way so it's nonsensical to think that anything is is useless that people do because the way in which we're interacting with the world we are looking at everything that's within our availability for action and to the degree to which we recognize it, we're, we're choosing that thing that is the most salient. And like that's how we are doing everything all the time from one millisecond to the next. You know, that's, that's just how we operate. But yeah. so, yeah. So the, the thing about intellectually, like the thing uh, as far as we're believing, the cool thing about the truth is that um, it is one root. So when you're there, there's no anxiety. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry about. Um, because everything is available to you. And so there, there's no want, no desire, but when you 
reach up to the branches, that's how we start thinking in separations and, and distinctions and complications. And that's, I think, the way most people work with epistemology is that, like, for instance, if you try to understand every single philosopher's ideas, it's impossible. There are too many branches. So this is true for everything that when we we're trying to hold all of these ideas in our mind, things get really, really complicated. And that's why we need something like rationality and rationalism in order to build a framework in which to contain this cacophony of concepts. However, it's not necessary. Just return to monkey. Um, I mean, sort of like just we're not monkeys, of- but yeah, it's like the Buddha said, right? Like he was, um, it wasn't even the Buddha. It was some, some monk or, or something. I, f- I don't really know Buddhism. I just kind of know it. Yeah. But, so, but the, it was about the dog, right? So this is in the gateless gate. I think it's the first koan maybe. Yeah. And um, so the question is, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the guy goes, mew, which basically just means that like, there's no answer, which basically right, right. just means like, you're an idiot. Like that's right. stupid, but it's kind of like asking, am I a dog? Right. Because Buddha nature is your experience because your experience is the only thing that's true. So it's a stupid question. It's like a nonsense question. It's like me asking if you have Buddha nature, it's a nonsense question. Wait, is it? Yeah. Because it's everything that is, has Buddha nature or. Because as soon as I start imagining your life, I've lost the thread of my own reality, right? Like your, your perspective is not here for me. It's, it's, it's not here for me. So I have to like dig deep into my delusion in order to kind of figure that out at all. So the concept that you have Buddha nature is like so beyond my actually directly interfacing with reality that it's just like a very complex idea that can't necessarily like, it's not true for me. So it's not true. Now it could be true for you and then it's true for you, but it'll never be true for me. Are you building up a model where truth is entirely subjective? How is there anything that I could base truth on outside of my experience? I mean, I guess you have the, if you want to go with like uh, the, I think the Vienna circles framing of, of it as the given, right? Like this assumption of some kind of an objective reality outside of ourselves. So, so are you just denying like the Like Uh Maybe... Are people saying noumenon, by the way? I don't know. Is okay. it pronounced a different way? I'm not that I smart. Think th- I think the singular is noumen, but I mean, Nick cool. Land is doing <laughs> Nick Land is doing some strange things. So I Nicky Nick. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think philosophers get really confused because they get like real complex, and then like they, they have this little tiny edge of the branch, and they go, well, "That's the one truth," and then you're like, "Oh, okay, come on, that's yeah." Silly. I think what's true is. Is is here? Okay. First of all, if the universe was created, uh, this is getting a little bit complicated and away from the point. But if the universe was created a minute ago, right? That's possible. Uh huh. But the universe could have been created a millisecond ago. That's possible. But here, here is still here. Now is still now. Now is still experience. No matter what, like no matter what you throw at now, it's still true. It's still experience. Experience is experience. So you cannot get away from the truth that now is real. Like it's impossible. Because it's experienced. Does this does is does this feel solipsistic to you? But only like more so because like maybe it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if it's solipsistic like um i'm not saying it is or it isn't because uh, solipsism is the assumption that my reality is the only one reality now that's like a complicated idea that's unnecessary to like it's a position that's unnecessary to take we don't need to take that position we can just say i'm looking from here i can feel what i feel and sometimes i can play around with ideas but it's all going on right now and it's cool and it's fun but for me to like take one of these complicated ideas and point to it and be like that's true no no like that's way too complicated it's kind of cartesian that it's just like now is now i'm experiencing now it's obviously here like there, nobody can argue that away. This is true. Yeah. Okay. Um, I hope you don't feel as though I'm interrogating you. I mean, I am kind oh, of no, interrogating I you. I, I love talking because about I'm trying to take everything that you're saying it and kind of like beat it into a framework that makes sense to me. And right. usually the way that I do Too that is ask, asking my people about edge cases. Yeah. Well, but I mean, like the other thing that's sort of striking me is that I. And maybe it's just because I'm asking you lots of questions, uh-huh. but it feels like you're getting at this idea that's very simple. Yeah. And then also you have this very elongated and elaborate like justification or support for it. The arguments. And I mean, like I can, I can go at it and point to it from a lot of different ways but yeah. i'm always pointing at the same thing which is like right, right. bro just look at the now it's real <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that's sure. it so i can like tell you a story that might get to that and uh, so like so there are a lot of analogies right and there are a lot of complex ways to get to this point and the story you tell should depend on the person you're talking to yeah um if you want to express that idea but but the, the the fact of this is just for me obvious yeah. to experience, and maybe it's obvious to other people if they can just sit and look at experience and be like, "Well, what's the most the most true thing? Like, what is the number one true thing?" And like Descartes said, "I think, therefore, I am," and I, I think that's a little bit too complicated. But I I think the one true thing that you can't get away from is that now is real. It's it's really tricky. I mean, definitely the entire, so. Experience is experienced. That's it. And it's actually simpler than that, which is experience is experience. So it's even tautological, but there's only experience and experience is here. That's it. What happens when you die? Is that just like a cessation of experience? I don't know. Is that not real because, (laughs) okay. I don't know. How would I know? I haven't died. That's the same question as the dog question. I'm not dead. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what about when I, and you can just cut me off anytime you want. Feel free. Like even if, even if the answer, you're the host, man. No, no, but (laughs) I, I feel like I'm being the irritant possibly. So like what happens when you're experiencing a thought is it, is a thought something you can experience? Like I will definitely shut down and not pay attention to any of my sensory inputs for long periods of time. Uh And sure just kind of drift around my mind and like, am I experiencing those things in this framework? And like, what is it? Eigen, when was the last time you blinked? How long ago was it? I have no idea. I just watched you blink four times in quick succession. Now here's the point. I think you (laughs) were not there. You did not see it, but your brain did your brain 
the the parts of your brain that are watching everything all the time knew it, but it's that your frontal cortex didn't know it and didn't put it into memory, right? So you you as an animal know all of this is going on. You saw it with your eyes, okay? Like that was something that happened right in front of you as intimately as possible, and it just didn't go into your your conscious attention. So here's the thing: is that your experience is merely what you are experiencing. So what happens when you are experiencing a thought and you're, you're kind of like simplifying it and you're not feeling your feet touching the ground and so forth. It's one of the ways that we are becoming whatever that specific experience is. And the problem with this is that if people do it a lot, they might create some suffering for themselves right? Now, it's not necessarily so. So for instance, somebody could be in a terrible situation and they might dip into their, you know, um, their, their imagination in order to escape that, whatever. But if somebody's just in a normal, cool situation and they're starting to experience ideation of constant fear and anxiety, that's not a state people generally want to be in. Typically being here is pretty great, actually. So the thing about thinking is that it's like it, it's cool and it can be fun, but being here is actually really great too. So what's happening when we're thinking is um, the 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 way I understand it from reading like Gilbert is that the visual cortex developed first, and then our perceptual cortex is built on top of the visual cortex. So that when we see our thoughts. We treat that as if we are seeing something in the real world. And this is the way the mind works because the mind works in a Spinozan way instead of a Cartesian way. And you can read Gilbert for more on this. But basically, when you are thinking, you are seeing a thought. As soon as you comprehend the thought, you are immediately accepting that thought. And then if you have sufficient energy, you will either certify or reject the thought. However, acceptance occurs no matter what, such that if someone starves you of enough energy and tells you the same thing over and over, you will believe it no matter what. So what, what is this accepting or rejecting a thought just like awareness of the thought or like kind of a, yes, this is true or no, this is false. So for instance, if I tell you a clown is not red, you must imagine a red clown. <laughs> we must imagine clowns red. And then you say, no, <laughs> and then you go, no, not red. Right. So for you to comprehend an idea, you must at, at first accept it. And right. so there have been these studies where they do this kind of a thing and say like, the dog is not white. Right. And then they distract someone while they're telling people this stuff, or yeah. they do this like in, in, in terrible war camps where they're trying to brainwash people. And um, like the Chinese educa re-education does this exact thing and or public schools or public schools. Exactly. And indoctrination, this is how indoctrination works. And so when you start people have enough energy and enough attention, it will just be, become accepted. Right. Right. So this is how we've been programmed more or less. And, um, again, Gilbert goes into this a lot. This isn't a, something that I necessarily like believe this is just a fun thing to play with but that's 
seems to be the way our minds work is that we're not like computers in this way. Yeah. Like if you have a computer, it's just going to be like true or false. But when you have um, the way we work is because we work on the visual cortex. Like that's the cool thing that the visual cortex comes first and the visual cortex trusts what it sees. Right. And the perceptual system of the mind is above this, right? It's built on that. And evolution can only work with what came from before. So the way we perceive in our mind is the same thing we visualize. And then above that, we have the ability to certify, which means we believe it more strongly or reject it, which means we go, oh, that's not true. Right. So the believing something isn't true or doubting is a high energy process. So if you're somebody that watches MSNBC every day, or of Fox News every day, those two people are going to become different people. Right. Do you, do you think, so just because of like repeated exposure to like different information? You will, you will just accept what you hear. Like this is why choosing what you consume to the degree that you can is in a large part choosing who you become. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, I'm just like pilling people left and right. Yeah, no, you're you're an absolute dispensary. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, we're almost at an hour and thirty minutes. Is there anything else you want to cover, or uh, any anything that we've missed that you want to chat about further? I mean, I can chat forever, and that's the kind <laughs> the kind of guy I am. I mean, there there were a bunch of people that asked questions. Oh yeah, um, let's go to the questions. I forgot about that. I gave you I gave you a bunch of stuff. You gave I me a talk really about any long, of it. Long ass yeah. list. Um. Da, 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 da. Okay, 42 likes. Let's see what people got. Chipmunks or squirrels? I think squirrels, because we had those in New York. I don't think we had a lot of chipmunks. Ah, chipmunks are the cute. Gray I think squirrel. I think they're not I think they're not as dicks. You know, they uh, I think the the red squirrel was native to England and somebody imported gray squirrels and they're getting out competed. It's very sad. Um, why does critter insist that now is self-evident? I think we got into that. That's from uh-huh. Rocker JJJ. Um, why do you think they're people at all? This about rats and post rats from Teddy rack. Okay. Um, I'm pretty good at covering these things. Mm. Yeah, no, this is, this is good. Um, problems with intellectual Twitter. What are the like top three problems with intellectual Twitter? They're so divorced from reality. Like that's the main thing is like, you know, go to a cafe and have some fun guys. Yeah, that's fair. Touch some grass dudes. Um, Okay. Last thing. What is going to get worse after the pandemic is over? Firstly, I don't know. Secondly. Yeah. Secondly. um, Hmm. What's going to get worse? I, I, everything's going to get better. Nothing's going to get worse. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, Especially after they listen to this podcast. Yeah, no, man. People are going to be <laughs> people are going to be pilled left and right. Um, do you have any questions for me? Of course, I do. Do it. Hit me. What's up with the vegetables? Uh, man, you know, I just don't don't enjoy vegetables. That's all. I was. What is that like? What, so, what's your like? Is it too bitter? What's your experience? With yeah, vegetables? they just they just feel weird. I mean, like a mouthful of broccoli. It's like you got to chew it, and something about the the texture is just, you know, like revulsive. I feel the same way about a lot of fruits. Like I just don't enjoy having pulp in my mouth, you know? Mm, pulp. So, so it's a texture thing. So yeah, do you think this is like a spectrum. Like, do you think it's, this is like being an on spectrum type thing? 
Um, I don't think I'm particularly on spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've just like learned to mimic certain behaviors of people who are on the spectrum. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've just, I mean, you know, my mother, bless her heart. Like she, she was a very Midwestern cook uh-huh. and a lot of what she made wasn't super tasty, uh-huh. but I don't know. I mean, like, so I, I could blame my mother for this, but that feels unkind. Uh-huh. She was trying really yeah. hard. She, she was a great mom in almost every way. Um, yeah, no, I just, just don't enjoy them and they don't seem to contribute to my, to my meals much, like rather just have some meat and, or perhaps grains. So yeah, that's mm. all dairy. Mm. So how, how do you not have scurvy? Uh, so scurvy's from vitamin C. I drink plenty of red wine. Uh, red wine has vitamin C. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, I'm drinking hard seltzer at the moment. My next question, I didn't prep for this, but my next question no, good. is, uh, how does it feel to actually talk to me? Because we didn't really talk when I interviewed you. Yeah. Was it mostly you me know? answering questions? Do you know why? No. Oh, I couldn't hear you. No shit. Really? Dude. That audio on my side was so bad, I threw it away. I re-recorded the entire episode. Jesus, no. I acted it out the whole episode. I swear to God. So, yeah, I threw away my audio. It was trash. Um, half that episode, I was disconnected. Like, straight up disconnected. And I would, it would be like five minutes. And I'd be like, holy, holy cow, I hope you didn't leave. And then you'd still be talking. <laughs> I'd be like, woo. Wow. But, yeah, I like wasn't there. Um so yeah, that I was like know that. <laughs> yeah, that was like a parasocial podcast interview, and yeah, I couldn't hear you at all. So with the first time I was editing that podcast, I was like, "Oh, oh, I, I, this is all new for me." <laughs> that holy shit! That it seemed like it took yeah. a long time for it to come out, which I respect yeah. and wasn't upset by. Yeah, that was but also that, the coronavirus. I was really sick. Oh shit! Right? Bad. Yeah, yeah. I've only been getting better now. Really, like I started jogging again. How long uh, did it take? I got sick February eighth, so it's been Jeez. three months. Oof. Yeah, so I'm I my my breathing. I think that my energy levels and my breathing and everything at this point is just because like I haven't been doing cardio. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been doing cardio from like age you know sixteen through now. Yeah. And uh, so after that, yeah, it hit me pretty pretty hard at the start, but then it just like it tapered off fast at first, and then not at all. Yeah. So I was going to work. And I work on my feet. So I was getting home and I was just like demolished. <laughs> I just had no energy. And uh, this, the interesting thing and like everything we're talking about in this episode, like my ideas, the ideas I interact with on a regular basis are almost always new for me. So like I'm talking about seeing like a state. I read that like three weeks ago. Nice. <laughs> so um, I've never read it. Yeah. Make so it all, the, all these ideas I'm talking about are like three months old. Because yeah. after I had the coronavirus, uh, I gave up like everything. Like I was like, if there's no food in the house, I guess I'm not eating. Like, like I just, no effort, zero effort. And actually I had never been there before. Like never since I was a child that it, it was just like, oh, there's nothing I have to worry about. Like I, I don't care about anything, not being productive. I started playing wow. And I was like, I don't, I don't care. Everything's cool. And completely letting go of my attachment to any outcome put me in this mind state where like life kind of started changing for me. And then I just got to a 
point where I kind of started seeing what I what I've been talking about now. And so that was like two and a half months ago. Um, so this was all triggered by the coronavirus, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. I think it's harder to maintain that mindset when you have a kid. Probably, probably. You just, would have to tell me. Just speculating about this now, but there's there's a lot of on call, like just kind of like being constantly vigilant about like yeah. the state of your kid. And sure. I wonder if that, I wonder if that changes the space of like mind frames that that's possible to have. I think it How's adds your some sleep been like. My sleep's I think been, sleeps in, yeah. Yeah, she slept for seven hours last night, which is incredible. Wow. She first first couple of first couple of weeks were very rough. After that, I think it was rougher for Celine. But mm. the baby has been like really going down for long stretches, which yeah. means she's getting down for long stretches, and she's she's not been doing better than this since she gave birth. Mm. So the very elastic Celine I have heard. And um so <laughs> yes what was the weight of your baby um when she was born yeah she, not to dox it uh she was i think she was eight pounds maybe seven ounces it's pretty right, it's a pretty big baby right after i might maybe maybe it was seven pounds 15 ounces i i can't remember honestly uh, no seven pounds 15 ounces at birth and then she lost weight immediately which happens to babies it turns out for the first yeah. um for the maybe first few days weight. And partly water weight and partly like milk production isn't all the way back up yet. Mm. And they have tiny stomachs. I mean, just, just diminutive stomachs. They need to feed sort of constantly and it's not that much milk. But at this point, her stomach is quite a lot larger. Baby is up to 13 pounds, one ounce, I think. Nice. Nearly doubled in size since birth. Yeah. And uh, she's, she's able to pack away huge quantities of milk. So she's sleeping more. Oh, do you, do you want to see the baby? Yeah. And Celine, hello. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Uh, I'll, I'll translate this later. Fun. Anyway, baby is baby's having a good time. Um, so yeah, no things are things are good baby wise. Although it is still a lot. I mean, like there's a huge personality change that I think comes with both of us, or may, maybe not even personality change, but just uh, a change in cognition, the way you say experience uh, here every moment. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think Celine is getting rewired more aggressively than I am, but uh -huh. I mean, you know, just with the baby in the room, it's like a gravity well for attention. I mean, like everything stops and you pay attention to the baby, even if you're only doing it passively, you're just aware that the baby is there. And that, right. that, that takes up a, a, a huge amount of like every moment that you have. And it's not and bad. And your empathetic experience is like different, right? It's kind of like if if you're around somebody that's super sensitive, you kind of become more sensitive. Yep. And when you're around somebody that's that's acting like a baby, you're kind of aware of that cognition and yeah. probably makes you more kind of present and playful and, you know, whatever. Um, so that's cool. I I've say actually, knowing it, nothing. Yeah, no, actually, it's it's um, being around a baby has made me more infantile. Um, just sort of in the same way that watching MSNBC makes you more liberal or whatever. I mean, just, like I thought you were going to say infantile. <laughs> yeah. Well, also that, but like, yeah, no, it's like, I'm, I'm finding myself like, you know, no, that's, that's not true. I don't think it is making more, me more infantile. Um, uh -huh. but it is, it is a lot. I think it is actually increasing my, like the, the extent to which I'm, I'm paternal. I mean, I've, I've mm. found myself mm. feeling more fatherly in most of my interactions, which is interesting. It's like, I feel like I have more weight and uh -huh. I feel gruffer and I'm less patient 
with other people sure. who are getting in the I've way noticed. of me taking care of my hat. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you like, uh, not logged out, but you, you stopped doing Twitter for a period of time. I was like, Whoa, that was, that was special. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I was so tired. So, we're, so we're talking about, uh, I asked a question about responsibility. Actually, I didn't ask a question about responsibility. I, I tweeted, challenge my view. I am not responsible for managing the emotions of others, right? And so this was just like an open challenge for anybody to question that. And yeah. something that brought, somebody that, something that people brought up was being a parent, mm. um, which I'm not sure, as someone that's not a parent, I'm not sure how to integrate that within my view of... Um, the the circle of responsibility. So I think I think I'm responsible to to act a certain way that is virtuous, but I don't think like my responsibility is outside of that. So for instance, if I am trying to act virtuous and somebody gets upset, that's not my fault. Like I'm I'm doing my best. You know uh-huh. what I mean? So I I'm responsible for doing my best, but I'm not responsible for knowing things I don't know, etc. Um, you, you kind of see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think philosophically I am mostly empathetic to the view that other people's emotions are in, in some kind of a, like, Oh, I don't know. In some sense they're their responsibility and that's the most efficient that that's the most efficient, like rule set to have as a reference or a guideline. And also at the same time, there are circumstances where you will want to pay attention to other people's emotional states, because if you don't, then you will deal with the consequences of not doing so. And sometimes those can be pretty unpleasant. Like, and I mean, like, you know, a baby is a really simple example of this, right? You know, we can, we can ignore her when she's like crying for attention, but Mm -hmm. you know, like then she might end up screaming at us for hours (laughs) and, and maybe that's not a consequence you want to deal with for, Mm. for example. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, I think even apart from that, as, as a parent, you're in a lot of ways completely responsible for your children. And that includes their emotional state and, and includes everything else about their development. And, you know, if you're not if you're not actively teaching them how to manage their emotional state, either, you know, maybe perhaps by suggesting that they respond to a situation differently than they are, or if they're actually just genuinely upset and not able to cope with it themselves, like helping them to soothe because they don't know how to do that yet. Right. You know, and, and there's an extent to which you can view a baby as not being a, not really being a person yet. And, yeah. you know, we have an entire series of institutions that are, you know, purportedly existing to turn babies into actual humans again, mm. in some sense, right? Like what, it, what does it mean to be human? Like, you know, being able to make decisions, being able to, eh, it's, it's mushy, it's mushy. Um, Always necessarily reductive because being human is this real special, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, like I, I would almost say she's quite a lot more of a critter or a creature than, than Aww, a human, perhaps, that's you me. know? Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> she's, she's becoming human and, and you're sort of like returning. So, um, becoming, mm. becoming, mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, well, to, to riff on, to riff on that, to make it about me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the becoming creature thing, like I, I can go a little bit into that is um, creature. Like you, you think of that as like an animal, but it's actually comes from creation, yep. right? It, it is a creation. So I'm, I'm kind of saying that like we are our own creation, but we're also becoming. And the, the becoming concept is essentially is imminent. 
that we are always necessarily our own creation in the moment yeah. now. And so it's basically just like the be here now, your your yeah. your own creation type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's what I'm pointing out with that. Yep. Yeah. And and like babies are entirely in the moment, right? Like yeah. they I mean, I, I think they have some concepts, but mostly they're just completely enthralled to their sensory input at any given point right. in time. If any if anything, I feel like interacting with babies is it makes virtue easier in a certain kind of way because when someone is so nakedly expressing how they feel then like the proper action is coming at you with such direct communication that action is a little bit simpler than if you're like in a pool of of people and you don't know how they feel about any certain kind of thing or whatever like your iteration toward the, the best outcome i feel like it would be more direct and simpler with somebody that's so bare it's tricky because there are the like at any given point in time they're like one of five things that she's most likely to want or like right. one, one of five things is a correct course of action uh -huh. but it's also very difficult because even though you want to do the thing that's the correct course of action you're only getting happy or crying like those right. are your signals and 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 it's not always obvious like which where those signals are leading you and and so it's it's tricky but for a different reason than it's normally tricky to to mm. like perhaps know what the best course of action with a baby is does it feel like it's a knowable thing like do you feel like you're getting better at figuring out the answer yes all right, cool. Very, very quickly. I mean, like we've gotten much better. There's, there's a lot of training of parents by the baby that goes on. Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know how conscious it is versus how much like she's just, you know, it's just us following this algorithm of things that have seemed to work well in the past and to which she's responded by no longer crying. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely this, the sort of thing where like you develop an intuition for how to do it. And even, you know, we, we had the grandparents over and my mom and Celine's mom, like we're both very good at taking the baby and just like repositioning her in different ways and talking to her in different ways and like interacting with her that really immediately calmed her down. Why did it work? Mm -hmm. I have no idea, but they, they just had this sort of intuition about how babies work and were able to adapt their general model for our you know specific case. How many kids have they had up to that point? Um, they've taken, so I've got an older brother and a younger sister Mm -hmm. And Celine has a bunch of kids, many of whom were adopted. Um, but she, she's the only direct biological child of her mother. Mm -hmm. But I mean, her mom did childcare nonstop for years. So mm -hmm. interesting. It, the way I would put this is basically that like there is knowledge that we have, and I would, I would use the word intelligence. Um, but there's intelligence we have that just doesn't use the like the, the frontal cortex, right? Yeah. So I mean, this is pretty much obvious. Any pay time you're paying attention to like social interaction, and um, it's just that experience and practice. Like we get humans are really really cool, and we get good at anything, including like this complicated thing of, of baby ring. I wonder, like in the ancient times or whatever, when women were having like 13 children or something, like how how good parents could be back then. Can you imagine? I wonder. You just have like this tribe. It'd be yeah. freaking crazy. You'd be really good. Yeah. You know? Well, 
Yeah. I mean, that's the, I, and we've been thinking a lot about child rearing in particular and, and like, especially during the first couple of months, the support systems that exist or don't exist for women. And I mean, like it's, it's pretty bad now, you know, like in a lot of ways, if you have a bunch of mothers, like all of whom have young children at once, the, the manner in which they can support each other is I think entirely different than what the, the typical result is in, you know, the contemporary world where if you have a kid, like you are the caregiver for that kid and maybe you get time off work. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't have to focus on anything else, but in a lot of ways, especially infant care, it's still too big a job for one person. I mean, this, yeah. you know, this kid can wear us both out if she has a particularly bad day and, you know, right. maybe we get her down by the end of the day, but then we're both completely fried because, yeah. you know, there's this imperative to go and help your kid who's screaming. Mm-hmm. And it, right. it's not just, it's not just empathy for the child and it's not just, well, it would be nice if it were quiet here. It's like babies crying cause like an emotional pain. Like you yeah. don't want your kid to be suffering. Like you can't, you can't, you cannot abide that. And so, you know, and I've been getting better at separating that concept from the, you know, fact that she's crying and it's like, okay, she's probably just worked up about something. She needs to figure out how to soothe herself, but she's not dying. She's definitely not dying and it's fine. But it's, it's, it's a lot to manage. And it's, you know, that, that input really is like an imperative for parents. And even for non-human animals, like, um, our our cat Zoe, when the baby cries and Sam carrying the baby around the room, she will chase my heels and run after me. She is so concerned about how the baby is doing. And, you Mm -hmm. know, if I set the baby down and the baby is crying, the cat will like walk up to her and butt her head with her head as a sign of affection. And she'll often like, try and pick up the baby in her teeth and take her somewhere else. Like she would a kitten, you yeah. know, she, she's hardwired to respond to this. And I mean, this is, this is a cat that's been spayed, you know, like it, she yeah. shouldn't be having this kind of a reaction maybe if, if it's purely hormonal, but I, I think it's a deeper wiring. So. Oh yeah. It's, it's gotta be, I was talking to Lithros a little bit about this because he's, he recently had a child as well. Yeah. And, uh, so we, my question to him was, um, all right, so babies are crying all the time. This is making parents neurotic, preventing them from sleeping. And even if you're in a tribe or something and you have more help, this still is is happening definitely to the mother and, you know, um, to, the, to the tribe that there are these crying babies in the middle of the night. And I was like, what's the usefulness? Like, wh- why, why are they doing this? And like you, you, on the surface level, you go, oh, because they need something. But I think that like the creation of the stress and the pain and the neuroticism has to go somewhere. Like it, it has to have a purpose because um, it's, it's everything about birth and reproduction and survival. Like these, these are all integrated. And his response was, and maybe you have something to add to this, but his response was that maybe by making, having a baby like stressful and painful that makes you more invested in the success of the child in the long term that if having a baby is too easy you're less invested in the child itself maybe i mean like we were pretty invested in the child right when she was born <laughs> you know i mean like that so that maybe is, it's unnecessary it, yeah i i mean like it, it feels but i mean there's a lot of variation across people and maybe you know, um, having that kind of signaling actually is important to other people or or that, that, that like required investment. I think that, you know, I, I don't know exactly how other parents work. I know 
here I've I've heard stories from Celine about some common failure modes in parenting where like babies will just not be attended and parents will ignore it when it cries. And that is actually terrible for the kids and they develop attachment disorders. And yeah. I mean, it's horrible, you know? So I, I don't know that I think it's maybe just mostly like a thing that the baby does because it seems to work for the baby and like babies really need a few things and they need them very intensely and they can't provide them themselves. And if the baby didn't have this nuclear weapon, if they weren't having somebody figure out exactly what they need, then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's more likely they would be underattended during this really critical phase. So, I mean, yeah. that, I think that's my read on it, but there is mm-hmm. certainly some like shaping behavior of the parent too. Right. It's it's every, everyone is always trained or being, tra- or training or being trained. Yeah. The way, yeah. The way it is. Okay, cool. Speaking of which, I should probably go and check in and see how they are doing right now. I get a little bit nervous if I go an extended period without getting a status update. Sure, absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure, Eigen. Congratulations on your success of a show. It is amazing. Thank you. Uh, Congratulations on yours, likewise. Thank you. I appreciate it. To, to shill once more, becomingcreature.substack.com mm-hmm. or at becomingcritter on Twitter. Yep. Rhymes with Twitter. Isn't that cool? I, you know, I was <laughs> thinking it and I thought I wouldn't say it. I'm glad you took that bullet. Oh, we're perfect. You and I, here we are. Look at us. <laughs> well, you, the audience won't be able to look at us, but just imagine us gazing into oh, each other's cameras. <laughs> <laughs> we're looking at each other's eyes with, with cats in the background. Yeah. But thank you so much, Igan. This was yeah. a really good time. Likewise, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Okay, I clicked stop. Um, why is it still recording? Son of a bitch, did the UI break? Pause. Mm-hmm.